It is indeed, and uh, 11 minutes now, it is after 8 p.m., and uh, our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk. Now, uh, the Fort Galata Foundation recently released a statement saying uh, that on the 20th of July, 1985, South Africa saw one of its largest uh, political funerals uh, when the Craddock Four uh, was laid uh, to their final resting places. And, and uh, yeah, nearly 36 years later, uh, or 36 years later to the day, uh, the son of Fort Galata marked that day in South Africa's history by filing a legal application in the High Court in Tswane. Now, the application seeks the following relief on behalf of the Craddock Four's families. One, to compel the National Police Minister, Peggy Kele, and the National Police Commissioner, Kethlas Tole, to ensure that the Directorate for Priority Crimes, the Hawks, finalize their investigations into the murders of the Craddock Four within 30 days of the court's order. Now, uh, that's a seminal moment because uh, in many ways, I mean, if you connect uh, that day in 1985, I've certainly seen many of the images that have come through there. Um, You know, flags of the South African Communist Party, the ANC, um, you know, and many uh, of the local organizations, uh, you know, flapping the Nlingalise on a very dusty day as uh, these heroes were laid to rest and... uh, yeah, 36 years later, the son of uh, one of those who were laid to rest that day is uh, still fighting uh, to understand uh, the uh, circumstances that had led to the passing uh, of uh, one Fort Kalata and his comrades, Matthew Goniwa, Sparom Kondo, and Estelom Mshawi. I'm joined uh, this evening uh, for our Thought Leader Thursday segment by uh, yeah the man in question, Lukanyo Kalata, journalist, activist, and co-author of the book, my father died for this. Mshagaz, good evening to you. Maskwam Kialabak, Metro FM Talk, and thank you so much for coming through. Thank you very much uh, for the platform and for the invite. Ngoos, I, was, I was saying earlier on to uh, you know uh, Robert uh, Marawa and Just Dice uh, that uh, you know, I always found it fascinating when uh, you, you were here at the public broadcaster how you would file reports, um, I guess, in three different languages. Uh, <laughs> I can't really remember the Kosa ones as much, but I, I certainly do remember the ones I would hear on the Afrikaans news and uh, on the English news. So uh, a real pleasure to have you on the platform. And, I, and, and as I said, you know, Abanda Bafana Nawe, here at the SABC so that we can do what we do uh, without any fear and favor. You know? Please stop it now. <laughs> yeah, let's start there. Let's start there before we get <laughs> before we get into, uh, you know, why we want to talk this evening. But 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 maybe, you know, uh, Lukanya, I want us put it to start just with the story of of your family. I mm. guess in the broader context of uh, what unfolded in 1985, um, and uh, of course, I guess the challenges that have happened since in the post-apartheid era. Mm. But a good starting point might be to just you know, uh, recount the history of your own family uh, in Craddock. And of course, as I said, when we started the show, you know, the the story of uh, the Reverend uh, and uh, Canon, uh, you know, uh, James Galata, who was Secretary General of the ANC. There's a town named after him, I think, Jamestown in the Eastern Cape, um, you know, and somebody who, you know, ironically, I guess, here in the history of the ANC, alongside many others like Mr. Kuma, uh, or Dr. Kuma, I should say, are critical in us understanding the ANC as what what it is now, um, as a sort of a national organization rather than pockets of organizations uh, at a provincial level. Let's maybe start there. How much time do you have? We have about (laughs) 30 minutes or so. Okay, I'll try and keep it short. So obviously, uh, look, uh, my great-grandfather, Reverend James Pallad, and his wife and three daughters, uh, they moved from a town called Somerset 
1928 and moved to Craddock. Mm. Uh, they moved there. Uh, he was sickly. He had uh, issues with his chest and Craddock being dry, like the weather. Mm. Uh, so it was thought, his doctors thought that it would be good for him to move to a climate like that. So he moved there in 1928 uh, and started, you know, he got there and he, his mission was to build a church. Um, and that's what he set out to do, you know. Uh, and then in 1930, he then joined the ANC, um, and almost immediately thereafter, he was elected as president um, of the ANC in the Cape. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, he continued to do his community work as an activist. Um, yeah, and then in 1936, he was then elected to the position of Secretary, Secretary General of the National Movement, uh, a position which he then held from 1936 to 1949. Mm. During that period, he served under three presidents, the uh, Peaks Liga which was in 1936 to 1937. 1937 to 1940, it was Z.R. Mahabane, mm. And then in, from 1940 to 1949, basically, he pitched his tent, if we could call it like that, um, you know, <clears throat> alongside uh, Dr. Mm. Uh, uh, Alfred B.T. Puma. And, and that coincides so, with the Second World War as well, right? Yeah, so mm. around about the start of the Second World War, you're right. So he, w- he then took office, and uh, yeah, in, in 36. So during all of that time, he... He, he was an incredible man because he oversaw a, quite a, a, a crucial period of the ANC because when he took office in 36, I mean, basically the ANC was on its deathbed. Mm. Mm. Pix Ligaseme had, had, you know, it, it was something similar to, to, to uh, you know, or even worse than what it looked like under the Jacob Zuma years, wow. you know? Mm. So, and then he rebuilt it. And one of the, one of the couple of, one of the issues that he oversaw, for instance, was a new constitution for the ANC, uh, the, the way in which it functioned. Mm. Uh, women could become fully-fledged members of the ANC and no longer, you know, like an indirect member. Women could now become a member of the ANC. Um, you know, uh, the Youth League in 1944 uh, was a direct, I, I think, result of the changes and a tour that he had undertaken with Uzet Arma Habane shortly after he took office in, 19, uh, in 1936 or 1937 when Uzet Arma Habane took over office. Mm. So, you know, he, he, he just served the ANC, you know, like throughout the 1940s and dedicated his, his whole life to it. Mm. He had set up a choir, for instance, which I didn't know uh, up until my son was a few years old. You had to raise money, mm. Yes, and he he toured with this choir, and uh, and and he would raise the money, and then that money would then fund ANC activities. Wow. You know, um, in, yeah. So nineteen forty nine, uh, I think by then, I think he was also like getting on in age. He was a little bit tired. Yeah. A yeah. year after, obviously, uh, Daniel Malan had then won uh, on the apartheid ticket. Mm. So my great-grandfather then said he wasn't going to stand uh, for another year. 
and then he was then uh, replaced by uh, Walter Sisulu yeah. as the Secretary General of the ANC. And I mean, th- this is the kind of, of household, in a way, that your father grows up in. Um, yes. In, yes. in so, Kadok, I mean, so, a religious so, household, but also a very political one. Yeah, so mm. my father uh, is, is born in 1956, um, in November 1956. Mm. At a time, w- w- shortly after my father's born in Johannesburg, in Sophia Town, my great-grandfather, his grandfather, James Kalata, is then arrested as part of the 156 treason trialists. Mm. So when my, when my grandmother took her newborn baby to her father to say, hey, look, I've got this child, your grandson, he then named him Fort, uh, like after the old Fort prison oh. where, they, where they were kept at the time. Right, sure. and if, and if you know that the old Fort Prison is now the site of the constitutional, constitutional court. court, let's pause there, Apoput, for a second. I, I want us to take a quick spot break, but when we come back, uh, I want us to to talk about um, you know just where we've started now. I mean, the naming of your father in a very particular way. I guess sure. you know, uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, this is just on another level. Yeah. Um, and then we'll also talk, I guess, about Craddock and that part of the world, uh, yeah. you know, in the Krasani district in uh, the Eastern Cape. Uh, we'll continue with Lukanyo Talata after this. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment and uh, our Thought Leader on this Thursday is uh, Lukanyo Talata, journalist, activist and co-author of the book My Father Died for This. And, uh, you know, Lukanyo, just before we went to the break, you, you were talking about, you know, uh, I guess... Uh, uh, the uh, story behind your father's name, Fort. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have called that place many things. I mean, some people called it Old Number Four, ne? I think that was the other name for it. Yeah. Um, and now it's, you know, the home of the Constitutional Court. Uh, so your father is born in this part of the world, here in uh, Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, at what point does he move to Craddock and, uh, I guess, to Lingalisha Township? Uh, and maybe just some reflection on the conditions of uh, places like those, um, you know, in the 60s, the 70s, and of course, right through into the 1980s? Well, shortly after Ayabong, uh, he, he was given his name. Um, my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, Ford's parents, basically, uh, they weren't married at the time. So mm. obviously, in Dongyagam Fundisi, you know, you cannot be having uh, children outside of wedlock. Yes, yes. So he then arranged for uh, uh, Fundisi from Joburg uh, to accompany uh, my grandmother and her newborn baby to Craddock. Mm. Uh, Yeah, this was uh, early 1957. Uh, Yeah, and then so Fort then went back and, you know, he arrived he arrived in Craddock when he was probably about three or four months. Mm. Um, uh, a couple of months later, my uh, great-grandfather was then among the first people to be released uh, from the treason, uh, you know, from the treason case. So he then went back uh, to Craddock and, and essentially to go and raise this little boy, mm. you know, uh, and, and he took... He, my grandfather, my great grandfather, didn't have any sons. He had three daughters, and 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 I think at that time he was, you know, nearing retirement. Mm. He, you know, so and there was this little boy in the house, and he really raised the little boy as as his own child, mm. not as a grandson, 
but as his own child. And the and the two of them, uh, my my dad and my great grandfather, were apparently very very close. You know, they they yeah, everything yeah, that came yeah. mm. was obviously because he was uh, he was raised by him. But also, you can imagine that that um, small town in the middle of of nowhere mm. in the Karoo. Apartheid, apartheid is rough. Racism is, is is next level. It's cradock, even to this yeah. day, man. Like, it, it, <laughs> yeah, you know, poverty is. Uh, I mean, cradock is a town that's surrounded by farms, mm. so the community, uh, uh, you know, is is largely in service of those farms. Mm. And I mean, under apartheid in the 1960s, uh, 1970s, 1980s. And I'm, there are elements in that town that are still racist to mm. today. And many people know? are evicted, I would think, from those farms. I mean, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. People still get evicted. But fortunately, I mean, what my great grandfather did, one of the, the most admirable things that he did was that while he was there, he, he used to set up schools in those farms, you know. Mm. Uh, he'd go around the farm and he'd ask to set up a, a, a church on the farm. And then as soon as the church takes hold and there's a a change in the behavior of, of, of the farm dwellers. And then he would ask, okay, so now we've, t- now we've started a, a church. Now can we build a school? And most times, you know, he would, he would ensure that uh, the department gives the money for him to be able to build a school. Mm. Uh, and then he would employ teachers and all of that. And you know that some of those farm schools that he set up in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they still function today. Wow. Yeah, dude. Yo. I mean, if if I if I could have seen yeah, half hey, of what he dude. did in his lifetime, I mean, I yeah, that's I, there's legacy, but then there's that, right? That's, then that, there's yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, in that context, uh, and and I, you know, I'm so happy you've painted that context because, in many ways, uh, with that context and having grown up in a family of somebody who was in many ways a community builder, yeah. Um, it's unsurprising then that your father is drawn not just, I guess, to, you know, the project of education, but also drawn very much to, you know, the political currents uh, of that time, yeah. late 70s, early 1980s. Yeah. Look, I mean, you're right. It wasn't surprising that my dad would go into that. You know, he honestly, it wasn't surprising um, because that's what he knew. That was probably what he was indoctrinated in. Mm. Uh, that was... That's probably what he wanted to do. He knew that the fight for 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 freedom, for equality, for justice, and all of those things that that is what he had to do to be able to continue. Mm. And it's no surprise to me. It's no surprise to anybody that 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 knows my great grandfather or that knew my dad that the two of, like that my father mm. would would go into sure. politics. So, so I want us to do maybe this part, I guess, of our discussion a bit differently. I think everybody is very familiar with um, the developments that unfolded. I mean, how strong yeah. the United Democratic Front became in the parts of the Eastern Cape, uh, the story of uh, Matthew Corniwe, uh, and how you know that community rose up uh, when yeah. he was under siege, and of course, you know the role of uh, your father in the civics, uh, you know. Uh, 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 the likes of Sperum Kondo and many yeah. others, uh, and also the links with the Port Elizabeth. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, so I think all of that, many of our listeners would be familiar with. I want us to fast forward, um, you know, to even after the funeral and after 1990. Yeah, you know, the organization that your family has paid immeasurable sacrifice um, to building up and uh, to effectively, 
you know, building it up to the shape that allows it to undertake the struggle, comes back into the country. There's a TRC process. Your family and your mother in particular is very much involved in that. Did you have hope at some point? I mean, at the end, by the time the TRC report comes out that, you know what, some of these people didn't come forward. If they did, they weren't truthful. Some of them didn't get amnesty. Surely you had some hope that the legal system of the new South Africa would have been able to give you closure and give you a sense of the circumstances that led to your father's death. Yeah, of course we had hope, dude. Of course we had hope. And the hope started on uh, the 27th of April, 1994. Mm. You mm. know, from, from election day, because now it's, now it's most, you know, it's our government now. Sure. Our government is going, is going, to, is going to do the things as, uh, as expected, you mm. know, because this is the day. And we, we carried a lot of hope on it. I, I kid you not. We, we carried a lot of hope. Mandela then came to Craddock in 95. Um, he spoke at, at, at the graves of the Craddock Four. Mm. He went to my great-grandfather's grave to go and lay a wreath. Mm. And, and, and he says about the, uh, about the Craddock Four that they were the true heroes of the struggle, you know? And so we're thinking, ah, it's on now, you mm. know? And then a mm. couple of days after his visit to Craddock, he signs the promotion of a National Unity and Reconciliation Act, which then gave way towards the TRC, which paved the way for the TRC. Mm. So we were, like we were on board in order. We were thinking, "Hi, this is this is going to happen. It. This is going to mm. happen. This is going to happen." Mm. Um, and then we got our hopes seriously dashed. Mm. We got our hopes seriously dashed in for it. Talk, talk to me about the sequence of events. So the report comes out. TRC Azula Nayo. The reports yeah. come out. Um, and you get a sense. I mean, you know Abandabafumani Amnesty. You know who didn't. Yeah. Uh, you, by then, you probably know also many of those nasty characters there. I mean, I think of one Gideon Nivot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, with a yellow teeth, chain smoker. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, yeah. I just cringe just thinking about him now. Um, <laughs> you know all of those characters. Yeah. You know no, Harold Sneeman and all of these people. Yeah. Yeah. You're so, thinking that they're going to be brought to book. Yeah, we, 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 we were convinced that they would be, uh, be brought to book. Anitra Bona, they were denied amnesty mm. in, in, in December 1999 already. Yes. So by the time 2003 rolls around and, and the commission is done with Umsebenzwari, Tina, we're just thinking ah, it's, a matter of, it's a matter of months now. Mm. Because also, remember, go, go 94 there was the second inquest that, that actually yes. fingered some of these people that said, Lona, investigate Lona, Nalona, mm. Nalona, Nalona, mm. and proved for a fact that there they, they were apartheid security forces involved in the murders of the Cradle Four. So, Tina, we were convinced. Now we know, and then they go the, to, the, to the TRC, then they are denied amnesty. So now we're like, okay, 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 tomorrow, tomorrow, ne? tomorrow, tomorrow it's going to happen. And then we're still waiting for tomorrow. And then when, when do you realize, you know, as Amakosa would say, when, when do you realize that? That uh, uh, now we clearly have to do something here. You know, I think, I think it was round about, uh, I think it was round about 2007, 2008, when, when former President Tabo Megi wanted to grant some, some backdoor amnesty process 
Wabanki that were, that had never even bothered to apply for amnesty. Mm, mm, and mm. then Umamawam and the other crowd of four widows alongside Utelinkadimengu, Sister Ganoktula Simelani. Yes, yes, yes. They now at Salga, yeah. Mm. Yeah, they then went to court. Five women and daughter. They went to court to go and stop the ANC president, the president of the country mm. at the time, from granting this illegal backdoor amnesty to these people. And I think at that time we we started because we couldn't understand why Utabo would want to to give these people amnesty mm. instead of prosecuting them. Yes. And I think at at that point we started realizing, but wait, hold on, something so, here. There's a problem here. Mm. Something is not right because about the prosecute Abba Bantu Abba, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and we keep on getting these reports, but these reports they they lead to no to to nowhere. There's there's, there's an investigation and then the investigation is Elinia Malali. So Eesh. I think 2008 onwards, we started realizing that something is not right. And then, I mean, so, so I understand the whole thing of indifference and just looking away. But then the active interference. Uh, I mean, I remember reading Vusi Piccoli's book. Sure. Um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if I want to, to read it again. Um, no, I mean, I'm just saying, like, there's, there's just so many things in that story. I mean, if I think even just of the story of Sizwe Kondil. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that maybe one other day. But, but one gets a sense that even the people who are interested in following up on these cases had all manner of insurmountable barriers placed in their way. Then you ask yourself why. Yeah. Then you ask yourself why. And then for years we've been asking that same question, Doctor. For years we've been asking why, why, why? Up until a few days ago, uh, earlier this month, the mm. Foundation Yaga FW declared uh, released some statement. Martin? Nonsense declared with a statement. He he said something quite interesting though. Mm. In that that there was an informal agreement that former leaders of the African National Congress had entered into ne? <clears throat> with former apartheid operatives not to prosecute TRC cases. So in between all of that statement, there's this small, small little bit in that statement, Saga declared, that proves, mm. ne? That proves that, that there were leaders of the ANC that got into an informal agreement with former members of the apartheid uh, government and operatives to say TRC cases will not be prosecuted. So Udi Clark, wherever he is, he is sitting on information because he clearly knows the names yes. of, of these... And the circumstances that might have led to that informal arrangement. No, he knows it. Now, in our meetings with the ANC... In our meetings with the ANC, they, they, they've kept on coming back to us to say, but yeah, who, who in the ANC? But we don't know because all we, all we have is like we have, we, we have an affidavit, Yagavusi Pikuli, a city, I was stopped. Mm. There was political interference. I, I gave an affidavit court. I, I swear by this thing, there was political interference. The ANC keeps on asking us, but who interfered? We like we don't know who interfered. That's why we need you as but, the ANC but, to. But surely, Lucano, if the ANC is saying we are the incumbents now in these roles, we don't know specifically who, you know, was the past, whatever. That's not the truth. Decision, right? If, even if they do say that, 
surely if you accept that there was some interference, there's an active obligation on you as an organization to make sure that you pressure whomever to be able to quickly prosecute some of these cases. I mean, we saw Joao da Silva sitting in the case of Ahmed Timol. Yeah. What about this particular case? And I think for me, what makes it even sadder is, you know, I hate to call you guys a dynastic ANC family, but in many ways, I guess you are, right? Oh, thank you. Sir. Yeah, I guess you are. I mean, but why would you then treat one of your own in this way? That you're going to have to ask to the ANC. That, that question you're going to have to ask to them. Because, I mean, now this is what we feel like every day. This is what we feel like every day. Every day. So I, I understand that I look like my father. A lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are days in forward. I would walk into my mother's, into my, like, into my mother's bedroom. You know, and she would look at me and she'd, she'd say, you, you look so much like a Ford. You know what I mean? Mm. And then that then starts a process all mm. of its own. Because now it's like, oh, okay, you know, and she, she would look at me and say like, okay, so, because remember my dad died when he was 28. So he never lived to be almost 40 mm. years old. So when my mother looks at me, she thinks, okay, so this is what my husband would have looked like at this age. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, one. So, and, so, and, and, yeah. and hey. for way to you, like, anyway, by the ANC, they, and this is why it's important. It, this is why we are pushing them very, very hard mm, to mm. get President Cyril Ramaphosa to institute a commission of inquiry yes. into why the cases of the TRC were suppressed mm. and why they were never investigated. Sure, sure. This sure. is why it's important. And if you tell them for it, the platform that you have, please help us. Because the president must we, mu- we must be able to know why it is that these TRC cases yeah, were never yeah, prosecuted. Yeah. And not just for a family like Khalad, but for a family like Kont, a family like Paul, a family like Goniu, a family like Klenge, a family like Kontolos, a family like Hashi. And you know, Lukanyo, those are the families that are known, right? How much more about the families in the many massacres in that part of the world? that were killed who are still looking for their people now and people were given amnesty. But because maybe there's no profile or means, many of them have never been able to do so. So so certainly, you know, uh, I certainly take up that challenge um, and maybe we can, we can have all manner of discussions offline. But the other thing I want us maybe just as we wrap up to talk to briefly is the challenge that, uh, you know, you took uh, to Tswane. Uh, maybe talk us a bit more through that uh, and I guess, you know, uh, what you're anticipating there. But more importantly, uh, aren't you afraid that, you know, some of these cases, uh, often policemen talk about cold cases. You know, in some cases, uh, you know, there's intentional, you know how these security police yeah. networks work. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, code of secrecy and silence. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how, how do you overcome that? You know, the, the reality was that in the, in the Timor uh, investigation, in the Timor matter, the NPA had actually appointed officers that were accused of having tortured Abandubetu back in the days. Fortunately, Imtiaz Kaji caught that early, and he was able to ensure that those officers are removed from the investigation. Mm. Yeah, one, like, this is the thing that happened just the other day within the NPA. So, but to come back to the court matter so tina all we're asking the court is to give 
the, the NPA and the Hawks. We're just asking for a deadline to say, finish your investigation within 30 days because you've had decades, decades in which to finish this thing. And then secondly, the NDPP, Ushamila Batoy, mm. for her 60 days, then she must tell us whether or not she's going to prosecute some of these people that are linked to the murders of the Kredofor. Because Omniwabongogu, Eric Venter, mm. he's in a coma. Mm. Right? He's in a coma. Ujewa, cancer, you know, so, and he's sick. Udiklerk, the other day, announced that he himself has got cancer. So, we don't have time. We, we cannot be wasting any more time because it's like last year. Yeah. You know, Lukanyo, I think, my brother, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap here. Uh, and it's, you know, been, for me, a very, you know, eye-opening conversation to have with you. And I think if there's anything that, for me, makes just my tummy boil, is you have a former president in the person of Frederick Willem de Klerk, <laughs> every day, whose medical costs are going to be covered, yeah. but can come and issue cryptic statements and still be seen as somebody deserving of a Nobel Peace Prize and deserving of a voice in the new South Africa. I, I take serious issue with that, but... You know, but I don't know. Like, I, I certainly take issue with that. But Lukanyo, we're going to have to leave it here. A real pleasure catching up with you. And I certainly hope we can continue this discussion and see how we can amplify and massify this particular one. For it, we are grateful to you. Uh, thank you very much for your interest in these stories and for keeping the nation informed and for keeping the struggle alive. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, 18 minutes it is now before 9pm. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk. And uh, yeah, big thank you there to Lukanya Talata for joining us as our thought leader Thursday. Yo, uh, uh, 